Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I haven't seen Pawnee's this mad since Frankie's discontinued their pizza-stuffed crust pizza. It was a pizza whose crust was stuffed with little pizzas, and the crust of those little pizzas was made of chocolate. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. This week on the show, a conversation with Nate DeMeo, creator of one of our very favorite podcasts, The Memory Palace. He talks about growing up in Rhode Island surrounded by generations of formidable storytellers. Our brushes with greatness weren't that great. But the stories really were. We nerd out with Nate about history, pop songs, and parks and recreation. All that plus a Simpsons nerd confession, the first of many we expect, right here on Nerdette. Nate DeMeo started his podcast, The Memory Palace, in 2008. These stories are gorgeous. They're a breath of fresh air, but all of these things seem completely true when I say them, but they don't fully get at just how wonderful The Memory Palace is. A lot of them are sad, but there's still some sense of connection that you have with these people who lived in a completely different time in a completely different place that you wouldn't think you would have anything in common with. And Nate DeMeo is able to show you that, yes, you do, because The Memory Palace is stories about people. No history buff worth their salt would respect either my level of knowledge (laughs) (laughs) or my depth of reading. And I do think that surprises people. But the truth is, I have this abiding love and fascination for the past and for the things that came before. But I'm just kind of constantly placing my own experience in this fluid timeline. And I very much grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, with a family of storytellers on both sides of the family. My mom and dad grew up basically on opposite sides of the wrong side of the tracks in Rhode Island. (laughs) Um, They grew up in the neighborhood that Carla Tortelli from Cheers was supposed to have grown up from (laughs) in Federal Hill. And my dad lived in like the poor section and my mom lived in the slightly less poor section. And so I had two Italian grandfathers, two Swedish grandmothers, and their immigrant stories were very, very similar. My mom has three sisters and my dad had three brothers. The symmetry of their lives is parents who love telling stories of the old days. And for my mom's family, that was in the early 1930s. My grandfather owned a nightclub called first the Hi-Ho and then the Club Baghdad, <laughs> yes. um, so, which is like full-on Edward Saidi yeah. orientalism, <laughs> sketchy in its decor. But it was like a showroom. And he met my grandmother when she was sent as a temp showgirl from her temp dancer agency up in Boston. Oh, my God. Temp showgirl is one of the best phrases I've heard in some time. <laughs> and so they have all these great stories of the club because it was a place where cool stories happened, where colorful characters came in. And it's filled with fourth tier mob bosses and 
showgirls and literal dancing bears and <laughs> you know giant mastiffs and troops of dwarf acrobats. And I also feel like it gave me this sort of sense of a time gone by in that same place. Because here I am in the house that this stuff took place in because my grandfather lived in this house in 11 Pierce Street in Providence from the time he was seven and lived there his whole life. And then my mom grew up in there. And then later on, I lived there. And I was just very aware of how your moment in history defines who you are and what your opportunities are and what music you like to listen to and how you like to wear your hair. And you live in Rhode Island It's a state that is 45 minutes by 50 minutes, and it's a (laughs) tiny little thing. It's the state that other states define themselves by how many of Rhode Islands can fit in them. I'm from Alaska, and we mocked you heartily. Absolutely. (laughs) There's so many of my states that can fit in your state. So having grown up in this place where our brushes with greatness weren't that great, but the stories really were, and being able to kind of look around the town and see that this is the place where your great-grandfather's old barbershop used to be. This hill that you are struggling to drive stick shift up on the east side of Providence, this is the same one when your grandfather was driving the taxi cab, the brakes went out, and he went backwards on You know, as a kid and then later as an adult, walking around the town, seeing the way that their stories and that as I sort of accrued my own stories were infused in the landscape, it gave me this sense of the world as this constantly unfolding set of stories. It sort of reminds me of something, I think it might have been Chris Ware who said that there comes a point when you stop growing up and start aging where you do assign a linear narrative to your life. Mm -hmm. One of the, whoa, dude, sort of uh, (laughs) ideas that struck me as a young adult that I have come to firmly believe is that I believe that process of narrativizing your life is at the root of existence. Our psyches are very fragile things that could be thrown off by too many cocktails. You know, like we are sort of a tenuous web of firing neurons. And it's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves that kind of holds it together. I just love that most people, if they move into an old house when they're younger, they maybe say, if these walls could talk, I wonder what they would say, but you actually could just go back to the source and you had the actual stories of this one singular place. No, it was the best. It's a two-story tenement and it had been occupied by my mom's side since 1916. And my grandfather and my mom's family lived downstairs and then his sister and her terrible, terrible, terrible husband lived upstairs and I essentially inherited and kind of took charge as hermit caretaker of this house when I was about 26 or so, and then have four or five years in that thing. And I would dig up stuff in this house. I would find photos. And while my grandmother's alive, I could turn to her and I could say, who is this person? And eventually the house needed to be sold after my grandmother died. And there was only a couple things that I wanted. One of them was this sketch that would be drawn by someone outside of like Navy Pier, you know, where you sit down and it's actually pretty good. It's a drawing of my grandmother and it's like the Latin Quarter, Boston, 1939 or something. And so my grandmother looks lovely and she has a very elegant going out in the town 30s thing. So I show it to her and she tells me this wonderful story and is that my grandfather had this other showgirl named Dottie. (laughs) Um, that he was juggling. There's this real competition between Dottie, who is, I believe, the dance captain. Oh. And my grandfather's 31, and she was an age-appropriate 29. And (laughs) and my grandmother's like 20. And she was the kind of hot young thing. There was this romantic competition between the two of them. And at one point, my grandmother got fed up 
And so all the guys who would come into the nightclub and they would ask her out. And then she'd say, well, I'm with Ray. One night she decides not to do that. And so the guy takes her on the town to Boston and they get that drawing done. And she described it as what should have been a fabulous date. They went to the best restaurant. But at the end of the night, she realized she had to go fight for my grandfather. So that was her memento of the night. And it was tucked into a drawer. And it was this story that only I knew, you know, at the time. And now the Nerdette listeners know. (laughs) Um, But it was a remarkable thing to be able to go in and hear what the walls were saying. We're talking to Nate DeMeo of the Memory Palace. You've talked a little bit, too, about storytelling in one specific medium, which is the pop song. I do have this love of the pop song. I believe that there's a whole lot that can be done in three minutes and that you're almost always better getting out sooner than later. And when I was a teenager and listening to music and really loving the sort of pre-Nirvana alternative radio and then going from that and discovering hardcore. There was still this pop song structure. And, you know, I sort of learned early on, particularly from my dad, I was a huge music fan, the kind of amazing power of, you know, music and memory and the song that reminds you of your trip to Colorado when you're five and all that stuff. And I was always very fascinated by how that could happen and how something that is so short and so predictable in so many ways, how within that narrow construct of verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, out, pop song, you can really have infinite variety and that there's a million different ways to start one. And I've kind of applied that to the Memory Palace. I want it to be on some level pop satisfying, even if subject matter is a little challenging. Like I want it to have a pop thrill to it. And I also like being limited to a certain format. If Carol King can write 37 variations on, I think you're cute, I think I'm going to ask you out (laughs) and have... 17 of them would be great, then I ought to be able to find new ways to kind of like reconfigure this thing and make a satisfying pop song of the story. Still to come, we talk with the Memory Palace's Nate DeMeo about his time working with the crew of Parks and Rec. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. We're picking the brain of one of our favorite storytellers this week on Nerdette, creator of the history podcast, The Memory Palace. There's something else that I think of when I think of both The Memory Palace and the Parks and Rec process, Mm -hmm. which is that there's this delicate balance between heart and snark. And when you were writing the Pawnee book, which sounds like a really fun project, maybe you can tell us how you sort of got roped into that book project. But also, how do you tell the story of a fictional small town in America with that balance in mind? I believe that Greg Daniels, the co-creator of Parks and Rec, was at the bookstore and saw these Arcadia Press books where they had these sepia-toned versions of Any Town USA. Every neighborhood in any city in America essentially has one of these 
And wouldn't it be kind of a kick to do one for Pawnee? So my friend Mike, who is his co-creator and the showrunner for that show, Mike Schur, was a fan of the Memory Palace and is like, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing. It'd be interesting if you could come up with a backstory for this town of Pawnee, which would both be pretty ridiculous because it's Pawnee, but that also feels like it could be a semi-plausible backstory. I think as you started to kick it around and we started to come up with ideas, the book expanded. But I think a part of the reason why that worked is that the thing that Mike and I share, and it is sort of in the Venn diagram of Parks and the Memory Palace, is this sense of absurdity and toil, both of small town life, but also just sort of like American life writ large. But that thing that I love about what they've done at Parks is that for as absurd as the portions might be at the fictional restaurant. Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Wait, wait. I worry what you just heard was, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. What I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs you have. And as backward thinking as the people in the town are, For some reason, when people in Pawnee use the water fountain, they put their mouths completely over the spouts. It's like this weird, disgusting local quirk. Kiss one water fountain drinker, you're kissing everyone in Pawnee. It goes beyond just that to respect them for real people with real lives. And it's also not simply a celebration of the large portions or whatever. It's just fundamentally we all truly struggle. (laughs) That the easiest lives are filled with periods of extreme boredom. The easiest lives are filled with periods of extreme physical discomfort and compromised choices. And while there are many winners in the game of life, no one really runs the board, you know? And what we discovered as we started to pitch ideas was that there was a worldview that overlapped a lot. And then for me, as a person who like thinks about quirks and idiosyncrasies of people living in history and the way that their lives define them, to like go in and figure out what the talent for each Miss Pawnee contestant going back to 1920 and like, you know, and ground them historically was super fun. June 8th, 1922, the Pawnee Bread Factory burned to the ground. We lost a lot of good bread that day, as well as several human lives. And it also made the whole town smell like toast, which one resident described as, quote, disturbingly enticing. I mean, watching that show and having grown up in... Pawnee, Michigan, basically. Uh It's pretty real. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the thing that Mike in particular has, there's a reason why SimCity works. In the Pawnee version and, frankly, the real version of SimCity, not only will you have your fire department and your library and your animal control and all the things you need to make a city run, but the things that should be in any town and turn out to be in any town is like the all-purpose function hall that's owned by some weird family that yeah. like you know <laughs> has a kind of tacky decor. What happens in that all-purpose function hall? People get married, people have 75th anniversary parties, people retire from their union job, and the lives that unfold in the place with the fake brick, which in my neighborhood is a hilarious place in Little Armenia that is called the Vatican. <laughs> But at the same time, I do kind of want to have my 10th anniversary party at the Vatican (laughs) because it is a place that has witnessed all these sort of incredible moments. I don't know. That might be the next project. Come up with a Sim City where not only do you have to put the skate park in, you have to place the place that you can hide and smoke cigarettes next to the skate park. (laughs) (laughs) You've been digging in recently to one of my favorite things to nerd out about, space. Yes. I do love space. Wait, why do you love space? 
I want to go to space. And I was raised by someone who desperately wanted to go to space. So it was always... How did that desperation play out? In reading everything he could about how it might happen. What sort of business was your father in? He was a restaurant man. Oh, so naturally. Yeah. So he spent 14 hours a day in front of a hot stove. Right. So space sounded pretty great. Sure. I can imagine. Uh, And just the idea that we don't know what's out there is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts. Also that we're meant to do it. I think that humans left the cave and so we have to keep going. Mm Mm-hmm. Why were you studying space so intensely lately? I just got off a job writing for an ABC miniseries that is based in part on a book by Lily Koppel called The Astronaut Wives Club, which is about the wives of the astronauts in the 60s. And it was fun. It's a 10-episode miniseries that will be on the air next year on ABC. Because ABC knows people love space. They love space and they love wives. So this is like a Real Housewives of Outer Space thing. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. See, I think that that's kind of... (laughs) I think ABC was expecting it to be. (laughs) But it does turn out that when when you're talking about actual housewives, so like literally real housewives of outer space, you can't make them throw wine glasses at each other if that didn't actually happen. (laughs) Once they realized the limits of what they would be able to make up, they came to me hoping that I could mine real incidents, occasionally make big emotion out of uh, little factoids and stuff was part of the challenge. So that's kind of why I was brought in. But I have to admit, I came into this project writing about the space program not knowing a ton about the space program. I feel like most of what I knew, I knew from the right stuff, the movie, not the book. And also not really caring that much. Like, I was always kind of fascinated by how low-tech everything is. But the truth is, like, I don't have a huge desire to go to space. I would certainly would. I wouldn't turn down the opportunity. Although I'm sure I would throw up because I really get very motion sick. (laughs) Um, But I think the thing that was interesting to me about it is that I do think that... Do you guys ever read Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino? No. It's this book in which Marco Polo goes and is sitting with Genghis Khan. And Genghis Khan has this sort of tenuous relationship with Marco Polo. He's not sure if he's going to kill this foreigner. And every night they start to have this kind of Sherazada-like thing where, like, I'll kind of keep you around if you keep telling me stories about your travels. And so Marco Polo shows up and he starts telling stories about these places that he's been. And he's just totally making stuff up. Fantastic cities where these incredible things happen. And each of the cities is like this beautiful little allegory about something about life. And one of my favorites is the town in which... Six months a year, they do all their work. And then the next six months, the carnival rolls into town. And by month five, you're like, oh, God, when can I get back to the bank? (laughs) And, you know, by month two, you're like, oh, my God, when can I get back to the carnival? The point, ultimately, of all these sort of stories is that each of these stories, in a way, kind of represents a different aspect of Venice, Marco Polo's home, and that you ultimately don't need to travel to travel. And if you do go to some of these places, you're bringing yourself to them. So, like, they cannot never be as magical as you want them to be. So when I do think about going to space, I am interested in the idea. It is also this real place. And it's this real place where, like, you float around and that's pretty cool. But then you come home. And as we were exploring the stories of the wives and of the astronauts, I kept being really fascinated about what is life like after you've been to space? What is life like when your husband is doing something that you yourself will never do? When one of you happens to go to space and happens to be the guy who goes to space, what does that mean in your marriage? And what does that mean to the way that you parent? And what does that mean to your own expectations about your own life? And it was super fascinating to go in and unpack the 60s and a lot of the gender issues and have it be on this dramatic background where things were literally life and death. It was cool. So you haven't sold me on space, but you've totally sold me on the show. 
Well, good. <laughs> You're more likely to watch the show than to go to space, so that works out great. One of your most recent episodes of The Memory Palace takes place in part in space, mm-hmm. so let's listen to that. When she found out they were going to shoot her husband into space, Annie Glenn wanted to talk to her minister. They were faithful people, the Glens, devout Ohio Presbyterians, believers deep down. And when John Glenn was chosen to be one of the Mercury astronauts, Annie Glenn wanted to make sure that that was okay, that man could leave the planet and stay in God's good graces, or that the heavens weren't actually heaven. Her minister consulted the scriptures and found no good reason to keep her husband earthbound. And so on a March day in 1962, while John waited in a small metal capsule atop a 94-foot rocket for the clouds above the launch pad to flutter off and clear the Florida sky, Annie prayed for clear weather, for her husband's safe return, for America. The Glens were devout Ohio patriots, believers deep down. And then she sat on the rug in the living room in front of the TV, hugging her knees to her chest as Mission Control counted down to liftoff. And then watched the smoke billow and the flame flash as her husband was propelled up into the blue and into the troposphere and stratosphere and mesosphere and into the black. Guy looking very dark outside. He was to orbit the Earth three times in a little less than five hours, and there was much work to do. John was a Navy man, a war hero, duty-bound, yes sir, no sir, the right man for the job, if the job was checking off an array of procedures and processes, and monitoring the capabilities of the spacecraft and the spaceman. All the while keeping your eyes on your work, while the Earth whips by your window, while dawn turns to day, turns to night, turns to dawn, and on and on. While white ribbons of cloud royal and roll and break over Bali, or Boca Raton, or Dar es Salaam. But somewhere above the South Pacific, as he rounded into his second swing around the globe, something caught his eye. Uh, this is Friendship 7. I'll try to describe what I'm in here. Uh, I'm in a, a big mass of some very small particles. Uh, that are brilliantly lit up, like they're luminescent. I never saw anything like it. They're around the little... He was flying through a field of tiny glowing orbs. Uh, and they look like little stars, a whole shower of them coming Brightly lit, luminescent. They look like little stars, the fireflies. Uh, they swirl around the capsule and go... A whole shower of them surrounding him, seeming to follow him. There are literally thousands of them. Literally thousands of them. When John Glenn came back down to Earth and debriefed the folks at NASA and met the press and the president, neither he nor any of them had any good explanation for what he'd seen up there in space. And the mystery stayed with him, hung around his head like one of his glowing orbs, like the ticker tape that flittered around he and Annie at the parades the grateful nation threw in his honor. But he was a man comfortable with mysteries. He was a believer deep down. And he'd write that his experience in space, in the glowing fireflies, affirmed that faith. No one could see what he saw, he was sure, and not believe in God, not believe in miracles. He said the same thing some 35 years later, when he went into space again at the age of 77. 
By that point, people had solved the mystery. The glowing orbs weren't some extraterrestrial fireflies, weren't some flickering seraphim escorting a faithful man through the heavens, weren't some godly being, some shimmering intelligence beyond our own. They were P. John Glenn's urine, expelled from the capsule and frozen in thousands of tiny orbs that caught the sun and then seemed to glow from within. So, no miracle miracle. Just a 40-year-old man from Cambridge, Ohio, taking a leak while flying 18,000 miles an hour, 162 miles above the Earth, in an aluminum capsule made up of thousands upon thousands of individual parts, designed and manufactured and assembled by thousands upon thousands of individual Americans. Because the winding polyvariant histories of two nations pit those nations in an odd and temporary competition, at an odd and temporary historical moment. While the man's wife watched the TV, knees clutched to her chest on the living room carpet, which is close enough to a miracle for me. Nate DeMeo from the Memory Palace, thank you so much for joining us. This is super fun. Thank you so much. He's at the Memory Palace on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the Memory Palace the same way you subscribe to Nerdette. Be sure to listen to all the old episodes, too. You're really, really going to enjoy these. Here's some homework from Nate DeMeo. I'm going to advocate in a very nepotistic way, but one I can totally stand by for my wife's television show. My wife is the creator of Heart of Dixie on the CW. Oh my gosh, yes. And Heart of Dixie, she will even say, sounds like it's going to be a bad show. (laughs) It is about a New York doctor who goes down. It's Southern exposure, right? (laughs) It's Ephra Joel. It is Rachel Bilson. Summer Roberts ends up in Alabama and ends up being that small town doctor. And it started off, there was like a mandate to have like a case every week and My wife totally didn't care. She didn't (laughs) want to do that. And after a while, it just became what my wife does really well, which is that it's a super charming romantic comedy show with like a ridiculous small town, ridiculous characters who are really fun and adorable. And it is entering its fourth and presumably final season. And as much as I recommended in the Tal Calvino book earlier on, and as highfalutin is so much of my taste, there's a part of me that has always, always loved romantic comedy and has always loved wacky situations and wacky neighbors. And Bluebell, Alabama is a wonderful town to visit. So, so yeah, so Art of Dixie. Go watch it. Now it's time to hear from you. Confessions! We got several voicemails in a row from the same number on Saturday And I thought that that was strange until I found out that, Greta, this is your doing, isn't it? It is. I pressured this person into calling and leaving a nerd confession about The Simpsons because he is veritably obsessed, which, you know, is not that rare, right? It's The Simpsons. Hello, this is David Pittman, Morning Edition host at Houston Public Media News 88.7. I was asked to pass along a really amazing Simpsons-related nerd confession. And I have more than a few of those. So it's a condition that I've come to call Simpson's reflexive disorder. 
when you have a show like The Simpsons that has been around for 25 years, even longer than that before it became a full-time show, there is hardly anything that they have not covered. So in nearly every situation in life, whatever happens, there is a Simpsons quote for that. By season three, four, or five, when the syndication started happening for The Simpsons, and you would see them once or twice in the late afternoon or early evening right before prime time, and then again at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, depending on where you were. And you got to see them again and again and again and again, and with the repetition, it was easy enough to memorize the dialogue. Also, we had VCRs to record them with and watch them over and over again. So my Simpsons reflexive disorder is applying a Simpsons quote to just about every situation that I encounter in my daily life, no matter how much of a stretch it might be. We're hoping that the Simpsons Marathon has some of you thinking about your favorite Simpsons moments, your favorite Simpsons episodes, and ways that the Simpsons are central to your nerdy life. So we want you to call and give your Simpsons nerd confessions at 312 600 I think for full disclosure, Trisha, we need your Simpsons-related nerd confession right now. Right now? Yeah, right now. It's time. you got to come clean, honey. I'm still nervous about saying this on microphones because I was berated for this sentence that I uttered truthfully but sheepishly at WBEZ among my colleagues on Friday, which is, I've never seen a full episode of The Simpsons. I think we all need to just take a second and let that sink in. Oh, dear. Now you've done it. I, for one, am shocked by this news. Because you've watched The Simpsons? Yeah, I mean, The Simpsons was like the first show in our lives where we all watched it as a family. That show, more than any other show, I kind of grew up watching with all of us together. So let me be clear. I have no beef with The Simpsons. (laughs) This was not an intentional... I mean, I guess it was intentional in that I've seen all of Sherlock three times and I've never seen an episode of The Simpsons. So I'm clearly making choices. I'm not trying to not take responsibility for my choices. Right. But the choices were not driven, in this case, by any malice towards The Simpsons. I think it's just a holdover from the fact that I was not, not allowed to watch it as a child. And somehow that made me miss the boat. And I just never got around to watching it. And I really disappointed a lot of you beautiful nerds who I think are very funny and smart people and you think you're very funny and smart in part because of the show so clearly I've missed something and I'm going to try to make it up to my Simpsons friends and if you're a Simpsons obsessed listener I need you to help me know where to start because there's kind of a lot to catch up on. This is sort of like the perfect nerdette thing right because Yes, we would all love to shame you. And I think you have experienced a little (laughs) bit of that over the past couple days. But in the end, we all just really love The Simpsons. And we would love for you also to love The Simpsons. So this is how you listeners come in. Give us a call. Let us know what episodes you think are the best, what your favorite Simpsons moments are any Simpsons-related nerd confessions. We're going to do a full episode about The Simpsons soon. 312-600-5638. And again, please don't be mad. I mean, you know, I think indignant is a fair emotion to have, but we'll get over it, Trisha. (laughs) 312-600-5638. We love voicemails. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email newsletter. It's on the left side of the homepage. Or talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast, and you can like us on Facebook. Nerdat is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dassault, Patrick Burns, and Iris Lynn. 
Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw some stars if you're feeling generous, like the fantastically named Heidegard von Bingen did on iTunes. And there are other ways that you can help support Nerdette, too. If you're a nerd with a business or who works for one that wants to get your message out to Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.